Hello, I'm Luke Di Narona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL. And I'm really happy today to be in conversation with Adam Elliott Cooper. Adam is fellow in sociology at the University of Greenwich and will be joining Queen Mary University as a lecturer in politics from September 2021. He researches and writes on policing, anti-racism, colonialism and post-colonialism. And his first book, which is a wonderful book, Black Resistance to British Policing was published by Manchester University Press in May of this year. It focuses on resistance to racist state violence in 21st century Britain, but with a particular interest in how this resistance is shaped by histories of imperialism and anti-imperialism. He's written a lot journalistically as well. His writings appeared in The Guardian, Verso Blogs, Raw, Open Democracy and The Voice. And Adam also regularly appears on podcasts and broadcast news discussing policing, racism and anti-racism in Britain. Adam also sits on the board of the Monitoring Group, an anti-racist organisation challenging state racism and racial violence. And he's also, of course, a visiting research fellow at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre. So great to have you on the podcast, Adam. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me on, Luke. Looking forward to it. So I wanted to start by asking you perhaps a question that's too broad, given what's been going on the last couple of years. But what's been keeping you busy politically and intellectually this year in 2021? I think in the last 12 months, so much has happened politically. Um, so much that's been unpredictable, so much that's been difficult for people, but also so much that's brought hope um, and potential for progress and change. And since we saw the largest anti-racist protest in British history uh, in the summer of 2020, I think a lot of people like myself were worried, concerned, occupied by the possibility of the energy of those mobilisations dissipating kind of people getting exhausted or fed up or burnt out or um, disinterested. But that's not been the case at all. There's been plenty to keep us occupied. I think one of the first things that happened um, about six months ago was there were two quite high profile killings of people of colour in Wales. And I think one of the legacies of those mobilisations in the summer of 2020 meant that there were big protests um, in Cardiff and other parts of Northern Wales as well, in response to these uh, deaths at the hands of the police. And a really clear and confident articulation of these being connected to the wider systems of racial violence that people have been protesting in the summer. And I thought that um, mobilising in Wales, which isn't necessarily as well known as other um, parts of Britain as being a centre for anti-racist struggle, I thought was a really powerful sign of how a influential this mass movement has been. But of course, we've seen other things as well with um, the gov this government doubling down on its position on state power, authoritarianism and racism, both through its new policing bill, where it's attempting to criminalise protest, gypsy rubber traveller communities, as well as so-called gang violence, which disproportionately affects black communities, but also erode people's civil liberties and rights to assemble and to protest as well. And there's been mass mobilisations against that. We've seen feminist struggles rising out of the police uh, killing of Sarah Everett, which has also, I think, galvanised people into resistance against policing. And so I think what we've really seen happen since the mobilisations of 2020 is an expansion of um, what was taking place in that, where the more radical elements of these mobilisations were demanding a defunding of the police, 
an abolitionist vision, not simply the kinds of tired, ineffective reforms that we see rolled out every year since the 1970s and 80s for diversity initiatives and consultancy committees and and extra training and education. And we've seen that argument for a different kind of world, a different different kind of social relations, coalescing with these feminist uprisings these resistance movements against this policing bill, the solidarity movements with the Gypsy Roma Traveller communities. And this, these waves of action, I think, have kept all of the people who were interested in resistance to policing very, very busy. I guess the last things that have kept us busy, as if that wasn't enough, are, of course, the Conservative government's dire attempt at identity politics by recruiting as many black and brown Conservatives as, as they could to publish a report denying the existence of institutional racism and the widespread critical response to that from all from a vast sections of both the liberal and radical left commentary commentators and, and journalists and activists and of course most recently we've seen some of the largest palestine solidarity mobilizations in british history as well and i think those are also connected to the mobilizations a year ago and we're seeing a lot more young people coming out onto the streets becoming part of this wider solidarity movement as well thank you that's a really good overview of the moment we've been in the last year and I, and i agree with i agree with you that it's felt both terrible and hopeful i'm kind of wanting to draw out on two points there the, the first is kind of the you know the street politics that we've talked about before we saw the kind of intensification of certain kinds of street politics around the Brexit referendum with the both sides on the streets outside Parliament. We saw exile. We saw earlier iterations of BLM and school strikers and other environmental um, movements taking up space in the centre of cities. But I'm just thinking here about the street politics and what you've noticed, if any, from as someone who's probably been at protests against war, against imperialism, against police killings for you know over a decade now. Just to reflect a little bit on quite how intense this street politics is and say a little more perhaps about Kill the Bill and about Palestine, because I think some of the listeners won't know much of what happened um, with Kill the Bill and won't quite realise the scale of the Palestine demos the last couple of weeks. We're speaking at the end of May. Yeah, I think you're completely right. There's been a really interesting development and um, I guess galvanisation of street politics over the past 12 months in in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. And it's difficult to say why exactly that is. And maybe part of it is the fact that being in lockdown has meant that people have to congregate outside rather than indoors. And I think also what's really powerful about it is that we're seeing, I guess, a, a connection between the different kinds of street politics that have emerged in the last 12 to 18 months. So we're seeing schools, for instance, not simply having Black Lives Matter related demonstrations against policies or practices that schools are implementing, making demands for changes on their curriculum, with challenging racial disproportionality and school exclusion and those types of things. But we're also seeing school students protesting in solidarity with Palestine. We're seeing them articulate a connection between these different uh, forms of racism and legacies of uh, colonisation and, and imperialism. And I think that's one of the really amazing things that we're seeing, I think, being mobilised, these this, these connections being made, not simply by commentators or academics, but by people on the streets learning in these more kind of um, participatory, organic ways. And I think Kill the Bill is one of the is is one of the key ways in which we've seen those connections most vividly articulated, because this policing bill that I mentioned, which seeks to criminalised gypsy Roma traveller communities is likely to disproportionately affect black and other 
working class communities through uh, the expansion of police powers into public sector institutions and other public bodies. The erosion of people's right to protest through criminalising the ability of people to have protests which are disruptive or noisy. And even the proposals to criminalise people who intervene in a stop and search have brought in a wider coalition of activists, the widest coalition of radical organisations I think we've maybe seen in this country for a generation, from Gypsy Roma traveller groups, including socialist ones, to radical feminist organisations like uh, Sisters Uncuts, to, of course, Black Lives Matter organisations and similar groups, and lots of youth-led groups like the Forefront Project or No More Exclusions. And this has also, of course, brought in more mainstream activist organisations like trade unions and civil liberties organisations and certain uh, NGOs that work with migrants and, and people who are undocumented. And it's this broad coalition that I think has been a really inspiring form of street politics and street mobilisation across a relatively wide spectrum of different political organisations, but is being led by a very radical contingent, arguing not simply for this bill to be repealed and for certain aspects of police and prison power to be eroded, but instead is in fact arguing for a far more radical agenda. It's arguing for an agenda which seeks to erode the power of policing in prisons as we know it and invest in communities instead. And it's that language of defunding the police, which I think was repopularized or further popularized a year before, that I think is really enabling the movements that we're seeing today to remain committed to a more radical resistance to police and prison power. Yeah, and I was thinking, we're talking about the last 12 months, but how would you kind of situate it in relation to 2019, the general election? Because I'm kind of thinking that what was interesting, I suppose, about Labour Party under Corbyn was that social movements kind of found many of them were kind of involved in, invested in, campaigning for uh, one of the main parties. And, and that kind of possibility seems to have been shut down for many of those groups you described of people affiliated to them, of young people concerned about state violence or about nationalist chauvinism, concerned about police and prisons and forms of exclusion from schools, for example, probably feel like the Labour Party under the helm of forensic Keir Starmer is not a place that offers them any kind of home. And so I'm wondering if you've got anything to reflect on that, because I, I suppose what I'm hearing you, you describe so well is new constituencies forming with very radical demands and perspectives on the world, overwhelmingly of younger people, which seems to prove the emptiness of both the kind of diversity politics of the right and of big business and of the police, which you mentioned briefly, and, and you talk about really well in the book. And of course, the limitations of party politics in this particular system and with the particular kinds of petitioning to imaginary working class constituencies in the so-called red wall so any thoughts on going taking us back to 2019 and what turned out that horror show and it <laughs> plays into all this i think you're completely right there's it's difficult to know when to begin and there probably is no beginning for that reason uh, but i think thinking back to the uh, general election of 2019 in which we had a labor government under jeremy corbyn offering relatively speaking radical manifesto but on the you know in the context of western europe you know fairly centrist manifesto against a conservative party that came to power on a three-word manifesto gets brexit done and i think what the kind of grassroots movement which brought corbyn to the leadership of the labor party which was in many ways more radical than the labor party itself and more radical i think i would say than it's than the manifesto that they offered saw a retreat from the centre ground. And it meant that there was a clear left constituency and a clear 
right nationalist constituency. I think quite different to the kind of battle over the centre ground that we associate with the days of David Cameron and Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. And so with the decline of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, I think that there are a lot of people looking for a political home, looking for a new kind of grassroots movement. And I think it's really telling that the two or three key issues which Corbyn's Labour administration didn't consider to be a priority for them, the question of prison and police expansion, the question of borders, and of course, therefore, connected to that, the question of anti-racism, is one of the key issues which people are now mobilising around on the streets. And so I think that what we're seeing today is simultaneously both a result of the success of the Corbyn Labour Party, bringing a lot of young people into uh, the political arena for the first time, but at the same time is also the result of the failure of the Corbyn project to really speak to the demands of this generation of young people who, yes, wanted to end austerity, yes, wanted an end to tuition fees and a return to investment in housing and other areas of the welfare state, but they also wanted to roll back the power of the authoritarian state that had been built up since the rise of Thatcherism in the 1980s. And that was the section of Corbyn's Labour Party which had been neglected. And it is this that people are really beginning to mobilise around um, in the years that have followed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, let's move on to the book, Black Resistance to British Policing, which, as I said, we're speaking at the end of May. This book's just come out and I'm holding my copy and I'm very excited to see it in print. Based on years of work, both kind of political and academic work of yours. I mean, I think you've already set it up quite well. I was thinking as you were as you were speaking about the last 12 months and the coalition of forces and the ways in which they're developing radical understandings. I feel like your books come at the right time to kind of situate some of the current mobilizations in a longer history of anti-racist resistance in the UK and of course tracing that back to anti-imperial and anti-colonial struggles. Let's just get into it. I mean, maybe you can tell us briefly what the book is about and one way to start that would would be to just kind of talk us through what kind of historical period it covers I know it moves chronologically but maybe you can start us there so the book really for me begins in 2011 that's where the real meat of the book begins Um, and it begins in 2011 partly because there are I guess three key moments that lead to significant black uprisings, I would say, or black forms of black resistance to British policing. The first is the police killing of Smiley Culture in February 2011, uh, quite a well-known reggae artist. The second is a black man called Kingsley Burrell, who dies at the hands of the police in Birmingham in the West Midlands. And finally, that's most well-known is, of course, the police shooting of Mark Duggan in the August of that year. And I was quite concerned about the ways that people, commentators on the left and the right, were talking about these riots, these urban rebellions, as a mobilisation which was somehow unconnected to politics or signified the decline of black politics. And for me, I didn't consider these urban rebellions to be disconnected from the protests that took place in the February and March of 2011. I didn't see it as disconnected from the community march um, to Tottenham Police Station, um, which was the prelude to the first site of uh, the riots which began in Tottenham in North London. And I also didn't see it disconnected from the protest which happened in October of 2011, led by the United Family and Friends campaign, a coalition of 
families of people who have died at the hands of the state. And I certainly didn't see it in isolation from the community organising that was taking place in the immediate aftermath of the rebellions, which sought to defend people, particularly young people, from the increase in arrests and searches and raids and cases of brutality that was the state's response, a very political response, I might add, to these urban rebellions. And so I really was interested in thinking about the rebellions in this wider political context and crucially street politics, which was taking place. And I think that what doing that has enabled me to do is to better situate our current moment with the rise of Black Lives Matter in Britain, which began four to five years later, 2014, 2015, 2016, to our current moment today. Um, and thinking about the, how this period of Black British history in, in 2011 needs to be re-examined in order for us to understand that current moment. But the other thing I try to do in the book is further contextualise 21st century Black resistance to British policing. And I guess the way in which I do that is kind of out of a bit of a frustration with being someone who's interested in the history of, of Black politics in Britain and being overwhelmed with literature from the United States. And certainly being only really able to access a really small amount of quite liberal Black British literature on organising and activism and struggle. What I really wanted to do was to think about Britain in, a, in its global context. Because, of course, as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, Britain had the largest empire the world has ever known. And so connecting anti-racism to anti-colonialism helped me to think through a, a different kind of Black British history certainly a different kind of black British resistance to policing, thinking about the different forms of black resistance to British policing that hasn't taken place on the British mainland, that's taken place in the Caribbean, that's taken place across the African continent, and how these patterns of radical politics and mobilisation and organising came to shape Britain's radical black movements on the British mainland in the latter half of the 20th century. And I think that's a really crucial, for me anyway, context, not only for understanding the history of, of Black Britain, but also, of course, for understanding Black politics in the 21st century. That's really helpful. And I think one of the key interventions is also to productively offer an alternative to the kind of easy lifting of US kind of narratives, not to kind of just critique that vaguely, which I think sometimes we can be guilty of, you know, a kind of gen general kind of critique of importing US-based narratives to here where they're somehow not quite accurate enough or not historically specific enough. And I think you do that really well. I wanted to ask a kind of question about, this is a two-part question. One is, you know, why do you think it's important to look at the history of colonialism and colonial policing and counterinsurgency to understand contemporary policing? Because the book does also focus on those histories of, of policing practices themselves. And the follow-up question is, why, you know, have you focused, despite writing about policing and histories of policing, on primarily black resistance to British policing? Because that is a decision, right? It's not a book about policing and resistance. It's, it's, it's called Black Resistance to British Policing. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that decision to centre and orbit analysis around the resistance rather than the racism. So I might answer your second question first, if that's all right. I guess one of the reasons I became really interested in resistance is because it was, I guess, work that I involved in or been affected by. Um, I was a youth worker for a couple of years in Hackney and then a few other places in northeast London and so came into contact with a lot of organising groups in 2010, 2011, 2012, including Tottenham Defence Campaign and the Newham Monitoring Project that were doing really interesting work 
um, around the criminalization of young people, both during the, the riots of 2011, but also uh, during the Olympics of 2012. And I realized that not very many people were writing about it. And I saw my frustration with such little literature being available on the history of black struggle in Britain as being a, a kind of impetus to being like, right, well, I'm going to try and write about what's happening now then so that people who are trying to learn about things in 20 or 30 or 40 years time can have something to read to which isn't US focused, which isn't centering uh, the African-American experience. But I think also the other reason I guess I'm kind of focused on resistance is partly because it's quite difficult to write about pain and suffering and authoritarianism and violence every single day for as long as it takes you to finish your PhD. Um, and so I, I, I partly also write about resistance because it's, it's what gives me energy, what gives me hope, it's what inspires me. And I think it's what has enabled me to pursue an almost decade long writing project um, without losing my will to live. <laughs> the second part of your question about you know, the importance of colonial policing, I think this again is really crucial for demystifying Britain's uh, self-image um, that it projects both around the world as well as internally as this liberal place in which racism has only become an issue since uh, the so-called Windrush generation, where significant numbers of people from Britain's Caribbean colonies migrated to the centre of empire in the 1940s and 50s, and instead identify the fact that for most of Britain's history, the vast majority of its policing has not taken place in the British mainland. It's taken place in its colonies. And therefore, in order to better understand policing today, from prevents and the so-called counter-extremism policing, to its anti-gangs policing, which disproportionately affects uh, black communities, to its border regimes and forms of deportation, can be far better understood in this colonial context. And we can see it connecting to the British mainland partly through the people who shaped British policing in the 20th century, people like uh, Sir Kenneth Newman and Frank Kitson, who started their careers um, in, in Britain's colonies, including uh, Palestine, Malaya, Kenya and elsewhere, um, and ended up well, for, for, for Frank Kitson, it was Northern Ireland. And for Sir Kenneth Newman, it was Northern Ireland and then eventually London. And But we can also see it in the kind of tactics and the kind of material uh, tactics that were used, particularly in the 1980s, where we see via Northern Ireland forms of counterinsurgency policing making their way to the British mainland and being justified or rationalised in the public eye and, and, and by government um, because it's being used to repress the, the black violence of St Paul's in Bristol, of Toxteth in, in Liverpool, of Side in Manchester, of, of Tottenham in North London and Brixton in South London. And so following these roots, of these colonial roots of, of policing, I think is, is really useful for reasons for better understanding both, both policies um, and practices, as well as ideas. Thanks for that. Sorry, I, I folded two difficult questions, but you, you dealt with them really well. I mean, the first part on the, you know, on, on why resistance. I mean, I don't know how you feel about or whether you identify as, as, as a scholar activist. How do you feel about that term? I, I'm not big on labels, but uh, I guess it's something that I wrote in my PhD, maybe mm. because I felt like I kind of, you know, you've got to label things and categorise things in a PhD. I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about writing in a, in a normal book. You don't say it in the book. I mean, and I don't know. I mean, the term feels a bit fraught and maybe a bit icky in some ways, but I think that whatever it's supposed to refer to, 
I think you embody and that comes through in the book without it being necessarily your primary emphasis. You know, I think it's important to say to those who are interested in buying the book that this kind of emerges out of lots of work, lots of ongoing conversations that you've been part of and a commitment, political and ethical commitment, which I think shows in the book, um, despite you not kind of writing in ways which, I mean, you do write yourself in some of the interviews you do and stuff, but it's not the kind of central style. So yeah, props for that. I think it comes through and I think it's important to say that that's kind of how this work needs to be done. Not for every project, but but for this particular one. And kind of coming out of that, I want to think more about the politics, the political intervention. (laughs) And what are you trying to say about the fact that this is the most diverse cabinet that we've had, that the Tories do representation better than the Labour Party, most likely, at the moment, at least, (laughs) that we have a South Asian Home Secretary who is kind of cartoonishly evil, that we had a report recently basically arguing that you know institutional racism is is used too freely and actually it's not really what's going on chaired by um tony sewell who's a black british person you know conservative party mayoral candidate being sean bailey i mean you write about these two latter men a, a bit in the book and i just give you a chance to vent or to say what it is you find frustrating about that and what you think this book is trying to argue against what aspect of that politics this this book kind of seeks to get us out of i think that i found the uh Conservative Party's use of identity politics and uh, this kind of liberal representation quite frustrating to begin with. But now it's got to the point where I almost find it quite satisfying because I feel like the people who have been criticising this kind of superficial representational politics have been perhaps maybe feel slightly vindicated now because particularly following McPherson, the McPherson report in 1999, in which the Metropolitan Police were found to be institutionally racist, and there was a huge wave of uh, reforms which demanded greater diversity in public institutions, uh, diversity training and consultancy, as well as, of course, uh, anti-racist policies and practices. This led to very little improvements, of course, um, for the vast majority of people um, in experiencing racial inequalities. And I think that it's therefore maybe we should be unsurprised that the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, who are experiencing, of course, a similar kind of pattern of liberal representational politics as they arrived during the presidency of Barack Obama, implicitly reject this kind of reformism, implicitly reject this kind of liberal representation, because we've done everything the liberal anti-racists told us to do. We've put a black person as our head of state and as the attorney general in the US. We've had um, our we've got our senior politicians here in Britain being people of colour. And we've got this black led commission on racial and ethnic disparities. And this is what it's brought us. And so I think what it helps us to do, actually, is extinguish once and for all, I hope, these these demands for great more diversity, for more commissions and trainings and consultants and unconscious bias workshops and all of the other things which for the last 20 or 30 years have helped to dominate the anti-racist landscape. I think um, displacing many of the more radical demands that you might associate with Britain's Britain's Black Power movement in the 1970s and early 1980s, but also of course empower people like those which you have mentioned that have rose to prominence, not in the more left of centre Labour Party, in arguably the, the most extreme right Conservative Party this country has ever seen. And so I think for that reason, well, that's, I think this is one of one of the reasons why it is that the Black Lives Matter mobilisations, which of course came to kind of a crescendo in 2020, 
made almost no demands at all for greater diversity. It was almost impossible to see people articulating the kind of demands for accountability and representation, which were more common, I think, in the in the two or three decades that came before. And instead, they were making demands, which I think the key slogans that we saw coming out of these protests were, number one, the UK is not innocent, because the UK loves to imagine that racism is an American problem. Number two, that racism is steeped in imperialism, which is why we see uh, statues of slave owners, imperial um, advocates and other um, icons of empire being targeted by these mobilizations. And thirdly, of course, defunding the police, not demanding for liberal reforms to these uh, institutions of power and of violence and of coercion, but actually for the erosion of their power and, and in greater investment in the community-led forms of organizing, which can create more safety and strength for those most affected by harm and violence within our society. And so I think in some ways, the logical conclusion of liberal identity politics has come to fruition. People who are racialized in a way that's black or um, people who are people of color, those with the most racist and reactionary politics have been put in positions of power by a racist government. I think it being so stark now, it being so obvious now that this kind of politics is an utter failure. In fact, this kind of politics is an utter embarrassment to anti-racism that means that more radical proposals are, are being having to be taken more seriously. Thank you. Let's hope that they uh, have overplayed the hand and that they've made it seem so ridiculous that we therefore build more radical and transformational forms of anti-racism. Um, I want to just kind of close up with one question which is about the, the last substantive chapter of your book and I think I think we touched on some of it but we have to end with it because again as you say it's hopeful and I think it's also where you make some of the key political arguments that you want to make and tie them together and the chapter is called Futures of Black Resistance Disruption Rebellion Abolition. I wanted to pause on the last term abolition because we've had a lot of conversations I think on the left and among anti-racists about about abolition about this concept of abolition a lot of webinars and and, and stuff especially in response to um, George Floyd's murder and the global uprisings uh, kind of become a, a banner or an umbrella under which we think about these politics that you've outlined so well so I wanted to ask the broad part of the question is sort of you know what do you take up from abolition what do you you know why why did it prove useful for you to tie up this this book and I suppose that also raises the question of transposing from US context of literature and organizing on prison and police abolition to the UK context as well as as well as other challenges of transposing from the US. And also to say we haven't talked about the kind of um, gendered analysis and the feminist um, arguments that you make drawing on traditions of of black feminism and of feminist you know mother and women-led campaigns against police violence. So I just wanted to say that's a big thread throughout the book, particularly in kind of chapters two and three, but or one, and, one, two and three, I think you have a lot of gender analysis. So that's, and that also, of course, permeates the politics and the writing of abolition. So if there's any way to, to put the kind of feminist angle in there, then, then do. But otherwise, the broad question is kind of, why abolition for you? And does that raise challenges or opportunities when it comes to um, working with a concept developed again? over the pond? So I think there may be two or three reasons why I think the politics of abolitionism is so important. I think one of them is historical. Of course, abolitionism isn't a new concept. Um, it was, of course, popularized by people like Andrew Davis and others in the 1970s. And what I think abolitionism is for me 
it is how I think the 21st century articulation of black politics is envisioning revolutionary change. I think for the black power movements in Britain in the 1970s, it was a politics of revolution. I think for the, 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 their radical equivalents in the 21st century, it is a politics of abolitionism. And I think that there are a lot of um, similarities, but also a lot of differences between these two visions. I think the reason people were talking about global revolution in the 1970s and 60s was because global revolution was seemed like a potential thing that could happen with the rise of decolonizing nations and the Cold War raging and the potential of a, of a different kind of anti-capitalist world. And of course, we don't really have that potential in the same kind of way, anywhere near the same kind of way today, unfortunately. And so therefore, I think identifying abolitionism as how we articulate our revolutionary vision has been what people are latching onto with this, I guess, concurrent rise and expansion of police and prison power right so if the, you know the prison population in britain has has more than doubled since the 1970s when people were talking about revolution in the british black power movements and i think that it, we should be therefore unsurprised that um, black politics is responding to this expansion in police prison and border power with a language which is focusing on resisting this for this form of state violence and the second reason that it's such an important movement or idea or concept is because abolitionism doesn't simply reduce resistance to policing to the protests and the rebellions and the legal campaigns that we might more formally or easily associate with resistance to policing. Because, of course, defunding the police requires investment and building in communities. We can't defund the police unless we invest in the kinds of social and cultural um, and community-led infrastructure which is necessary to replace society's reliance on the police and prison system. And so people and organisations and community groups, which might not necessarily consider, have considered themselves to be part of a resistance movement to policing or maybe consider themselves to be on the periphery um, if they run uh, uh, mental health provision or uh, youth work or if they're a teacher who genuinely cares about their students or all of these different kinds of uh, community-led practices are integral, are central to an abolitionist movement against policing. It is not something which centres the kind of protests and rebellions and uprisings which have this direct confrontation with the police. It is also this kind of community building which is just as important. And I think that's one also one of the reasons why abolitionism is so important. It enables us to use resistance to policing, which is consistently the issue which leads to large black mobilizations of resistance across history, to open up a conversation about what kind of world it is we want to live in and what kind of communities we need to build in order to get closer to it. And I think that maybe the third reason it's so crucial is because it's also a global vision. The movement of abolitionism cannot be confined to state borders, not only because abolitionism is against borders, but crucially, it is fundamentally against the kind of militarism and imperialism um, which is connected to policing, right? And it understands militarism and policing to be a continuum rather than two separate entities. And while peace campaigners very often will argue 
that if there are problems in a part of the world that our governments are saying need to be solved with invasions and interventions um, and militarism. In fact, what would be a far better and more productive solution to the problems that may exist in other parts of the world would be investment in social infrastructure and community-led infrastructure and education and health and all of those types of things which people need to live a meaningful existence. And those very same arguments against imperialism and modern forms of militarism can be applied to arguments against policing today. What we need to do in order to address harm and violence within the most oppressed communities in our society that are all around us is not more violence from the state, but investment, social and community-led investments. And so I think bringing that historical and that international, as well as those community potentialities, I think is what makes abolitionism such a compelling idea for so many activists, but also such an politically urgent idea for both the people writing as well as um, those involved um, in the work on the ground. Thanks so much, Adam. This has been great. Thanks for, for bringing the hopeful analysis in your book to to life in this conversation. I feel energised by, by thinking about all of this and by hearing you articulate some of the theorise some of the energy that we've seen on the streets for the last 12 months and, of course, of course, longer. So we will leave it there, but I would encourage everyone to buy the book. It's brilliant. And congratulations again on the achievement. We're still in the month of, of the book's publication, so you should be celebrating. I know you have a book launch event tonight and this podcast will be coming out a bit later, but congratulations again. I hope you're managing to enjoy being a published author in this way because it's an amazing book. Thank you so much, Luke. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, I count this as part of those celebrations. So Good. <laughs> no worries. All right. Take care. You too. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.